This is, uh, this is a passage uh, from my copy of Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. It's a 1981 paperback, Penguin Classics. Um, the man who did the translation is uh, called George Bull. Uh, he's an English guy. Uh, he was an uh, academic translator, writer. And in the introduction, uh, there's a couple paragraphs that sort of explain a nuance in the Prince and in Machiavellian philosophy that is extremely important, but people miss when they just sort of use Machiavellian or the Prince um, as a shorthand for just like a totalitarian power. So I wanted to read it because I think um, a lot of the basis of what we're going to talk about today um, comes down to this nuance. It can further be argued that Machiavelli was fundamentally interested in the state rather than in the form of its government, and in the state as a self-sufficient entity in continual conflict with other states, and therefore in need of power. The new prince he created personified the state and enabled Machiavelli to try to please the Medici while dramatizing his views on the supreme political challenge of an effective foreign policy. What Machiavelli has to say concerning foreign policy could be applied by a republic every bit as much as by an autocracy. And Machiavelli's autocrat must not be thought of as an irresponsible tyrant. He continually stresses that the prince must build his state on the goodwill of the people. He is to be no despot, but must respect his subjects' susceptibilities, being ready for cruelty only because in the long run it is often kinder to be cruel than weak. So if Machiavelli in one place writes from a viewpoint of a Republican and in another from that of an autocrat, he is not advocating now liberty and now tyranny. Le least of all, must we let any acronistic notions of opposition between democracy and totalitarianism confuse our interpretation of his motives. The Florentine Republicans heartedly hated the Medici, but the Medici were no more totalitarians than the Republicans were advocates of universal suffrage. Comrades and friends, hello. Um, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Um, Rob's here in the Bunker Studio. Super producer Carl here, as always. And I am um, very happy to introduce our guest today. Uh, Claire Snyder Hall is an academic and an activist um, and an author. And uh, her, her book came out, I guess, during COVID. So that was sort of a weird release, I, I think. But um, her, her new book, I'm calling it a new book, Battling the Prince, A Woman Fights for Democracy, all the way from Sussex County, Claire Snyder Hall. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so exciting. I, I love, um, you know, hosting people here anyway, but when people like travel and come, it's fun. I like it. So thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's always great to be face to face. Yeah, I like it. It's so it. easy to do Zoom these days, but. Uh, you know, this whole concept was based on doing it in person all the time. And really, we only we only started doing it more often during COVID. We did try a couple things with people who were like remote. Um, but yeah, this is much better. Definitely. Much better. Um, so let's start the way we always start before I get into like the sort of the theoretical basis. Because we always start these with like people's background, where they grew up, what it was like, um, 
what their how their parents might have influenced them. But this is a this is part political memoir, so you do talk about that quite a bit, and it's a very interesting story. So, what was it like growing up and, and your mom and your dad? What was it like? Well, I had a I had a great I guess I had a good childhood. You know, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, which uh, I wouldn't recommend these days. <laughs> Actually, it's always been a conservative area, but. Um, the interesting thing in reflecting on growing up, because when I was, you know, when I decided to write a political memoir, I was thinking about, you know, how did I end up, you know, a lot of people would ask, how did you end up being a, a you know, left-wing activist? And I talk about it in the book. I was, my parents were devout Christians. Um, my father's a minister. My mother was a missionary before she married. And, um, but they were Methodists. And so sort of non, you know, not real aggressive. And the interesting thing, I think, is growing up during the Cold War and, uh, and taking the civics classes at my, at my high school, which were basically anti-communist um, indoctrination, and the vision of the United States that they portrayed, you know, the great, us as the great democracy on the right side of, you know, every issue, um, I, I internalized that to some extent. And then when I found out how untrue that is, that's one of the things that I think um, played the biggest role in radicalizing me. Yeah, it's funny because later on, obviously, you get involved in electoral politics. But when, you're, when your politics developed and when you sort of become radicalized and go into academia, um, your, your view of electoral politics isn't what it is sort of like today. Um, you took a, a sort of a dim, very dim view of it. <laughs> yeah, I actually, right, because I wasn't involved in electoral politics at all. I came out, at, well, I came out as a, I came to feminism, came out also, but I came out to feminism in college and got involved in sort of, um, you know, cultural feminism, um, went after college, I moved down to Florida and we had a thriving, like radical feminist, cultural feminist, and we don't have to get into the difference between those two, I guess. Today. The second wave, third wave. We're gonna <laughs> second get into wave, it. No. it was second wave. <laughs> <laughs> if I want to date myself. That's fine. Um, We're not doing that. So this is in the 80s. And um so I was an activist and working on the, th the three big issues back then, anti-nuclear peace movement, anti-Contra, uh, so um, Central American issues, and anti-apartheid um, work. And so I, was, I got into activism um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in terms of protests and feminism and so forth. And then I ended up going to graduate school and went into academic um, politics, political theory, um, got into socialism, democratic theory, and so forth. And so I didn't even get involved in electoral politics at all until I left academia in 2011 and moved out here to, to Rehoboth. Um, it's interesting because I, I just really didn't pay attention. I always voted, but I, was, I really was just a party-line voter. I, just, I was a Democrat, and I voted you know, all the way down. Yeah, my, my experience is kind of similar. I, I got, I think I call it radicalized, but realizing that I that – there was a participatory aspect to it mm -hmm. um, with, like, the Eugene campaign, say, six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, because I, I always had ideas. You know, I was – I'm only a little bit younger. So I remember the activism of the 80s because I was in school at that time. Mm -hmm. So I remember uh, the ANC anti-apartheid. Um, I remember the nuclear question um, during the Cold War. Um, so – yeah, I, I remember having, you know, being exposed to that and sort of having that politics, but didn't realize like, oh, the, but the only thing we have, we just vote like this. Didn't realize it was participatory for, for, for later in my life. 
So right, because I always as I I don't. It's like as soon as I became politically aware, I would growing up I was a little bit anti-political because my dad always watched the news and I thought it was boring, you know, and I didn't you know want to watch the news. I wanted to watch I don't know what some sitcom or something, and um, so when I when I became active though I was immediately like on the left for some for some reason, which I unpack a little bit in the book. And so I, the Democratic Party was always to the right of where I was. And so I figured, you know, why bother with that? Just try to make change um, in the streets. Yeah. So let's I, I want to give enough time to um, to the thesis that sort of underlays the book. And that's why I started with the um, the commentary about Machiavelli and the Prince. Um, you kind of lay out this progression uh through from from Machiavelli and the Prince through Gramsci, um, sort of developing how culture and social movements would work and sort of go against the hegemony, all the way through the present and make a uh, make a claim that the next step would be a collective movement of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you explain because you walk through it in the book in a very nice way? Because I think it starts with people sort of not understanding the Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and t- so when you get to when you get to a Marxist, little Marxist Italian guy in the, in prison, you might they might lose the connection. So can you can you mm-hmm. sort of make that connection? Yes. Well, the Prince is most it's most known for being the uh, book about how to gain and maintain power, right? Which, as you said in in your introduction, Machiavelli Machiavelli was a Republican in small R Republican, Correct. meaning self governing Republican, Republican anti monarch or anti aristocrat. Yes, rule of law. Participatory, actually. People have a misguided understanding of what republicanism is today. But Machiavelli was a Republican, and when um, he was actually, uh, when the Medicis came to power, he was um, thrown in prison. Another Italian tortured. guy in prison, which is pretty interesting because yeah. Gramsci was also in prison and tortured. Exactly. And so, you know, when he got out, he was trying to, revi- he was trying to redeem his career, and he wrote The Prince. But the, 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 for political theorists, the key is that last chapter in The Prince where it, it shows that if, you, if the prince were to follow all of the instructions that Machiavelli, Machiavelli lays out in his treatise, they would be arming the people and empowering the people. You know? And so really it's the idea of the people coming together, as you said, in a state. Now Gramsci picks this up in terms of empowering the people, but for him the prince, the modern prince as he calls it, is the revolutionary party. Um, Actually, the Communist Party, but he called, you know, he had was writing in code. So in the book, I, I think we need a strong, one of the things we need in the United States is a strong party that's going to pull together all the various pieces of the left, of the progressive movement, and um, but needs to be a collective, not with one person in charge, but a collective. And so I ended up using the term, the, um, New, Print, the uh, New Prince Collective in, in the book. I, I kind of struggled with how to frame that. But because Machiavelli was trying to unify people at a time when there weren't nation states, because he was writing in the 16th century. Um, and so then Gramsci was writing at a time when he was looking at an international movement. And then we're at the time that we're at. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that progression. Um, obviously, I, I will, I'll stop here just to give the book an, another plug. Um, if, if anybody's listening who likes what we do and we kind of use sort of history political theory to sort of back up sort of a participatory mass movement politics. That's what, that's what this book is about. And especially because the politics are um, hyper local to people that we know. Uh, and, and there's some like, well, there's some shit talking, 
um, you, you will really enjoy it. So I, I can't stress enough how all of this stuff ties together in ways that you'll see as we continue to talk to each other. Um, so you're in academia for a number of years. How did you find yourself then coming, coming to Delaware and leaving academia? Well, you know, I just, I guess basically I just got kind of burned out. Um, I was at, uh, I was on the faculty of George Mason University for um, 12 years. And my entire life had been geared towards becoming an academic. Um, you know, it's like, I was just talking about this at the conference um, last weekend. Um, you know, it's like in, in college, you know, you got to get into college when you're in high school. Then in college, you got to work with the right person, get that senior thesis, apply to graduate schools. Then you got to do everything you have to do in graduate school. Then you got to try to get a job. So my whole life had been um, about academia. And it was, so it's pretty extraordinary to, finally realized that maybe I could do something else and I think it was because I I really got burned out and also I had a, a situation where I had a long commute you know people laugh that I say I gave up tenure because of traffic but I just one of the light bulbs for me was just sitting in my house and saying I am not commuting on the Capitol Beltway for the rest of my life you know it's just it's not worth it and uh, I had been trying to move into administration which I did at a part-time basis so, you know, at one point my wife, Mickey, just, you know, was like, you know, hey, why don't we just move out to uh, Rehoboth? Because we loved being out in Rehoboth so much. And so I, the part of my job that I enjoyed the most was writing. And so she's like, well, why don't you move out to Rehoboth and you can write full time? So that's what I did. But then I was, I was asked to run for office. So, <laughs> yeah. So involvement with my, the, the next, the next bullet point is just one bullet point because I know there's a lot, a lot there. Your involvement in Delaware politics, or or really your first impressions, and then being sort of asked um, to participate in sort of party politics. Um, yeah, I mean, if somebody asked you to tell that story in five minutes, how would you how would you tell it? Because it's it's pretty interesting. Because again, we have a certain being from here have a certain idea of like Eastern Sussex politics, and and you you got thrown into it. Um, pretty quickly so like what was your impression coming in from the dc area seeing it and then starting to participate in it well it was really well when we moved out to rehoboth we wanted to get more involved i mean one of the reasons i left academia was i wanted to be more in have a stronger community and not be like commuting in a big city area but i wanted a stronger sense of community and we wanted to get more involved and so one of the first things we did is go to the uh 14th RD Democratic Party meeting. And I always laugh because in D.C., well, we were in the Maryland suburbs, but in D.C., I tried to get on the Silver Spring Citizens Advisory Committee, which had which was volunteer, had no power, and I have a Ph.D. in political science, and I couldn't get on. But I moved out to Rehoboth, and I we came to one meeting, and they're like, hey, you want to join the committee? And then, you know, a few months later, I was elected chair. So... It was it was great, and we had a we had a good run there, um, and tried to we tried to make it more participatory. Um, we had you know convened town hall meetings and tried to you know tried to build it up. Um, but the th- the first thing that really struck me is that well a couple of things that the the ivory tower um, progressivism is a little more to the left than what progressivism is in Sussex. And um, I won't speak for uh, Newcastle. Well, I, here's what I'll say, and this is maybe this this is a good time to like define that term. 
I'm starting to really sour on this idea of like calling people progressive. Like they're the there's a corporate Democrat and a progressive Democrat. Progressive Democrats are corporate Democrats too. Doesn't really mean anything because it could mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, yeah. So I'm actually f- trying to think of a way just to start telling people, you know, I, I'm I'm a Marxist, I'm a socialist. Um, if you if that's progressive. You can call it that. I just want to, to be very clear that I'm that. So if you're not, say you're not, not that you are, you know, it's sort of a, a it's a very uh, nebulous term, I feel like. Any, anyway, and then when you step into it, it's, it's even, it's used in a way that's uh, even more um, nefarious, I think. But, yeah, I mean. But anyway, that was, I just wanted to give my, my little spiel there because it's an odd, it's an odd word. It it is a very odd word, and in fact, in the in the beginning of the book, when in the section where I was like defining my terms, like what what do you mean by progressivism? Right. I I use it in the book as like an umbrella term, yeah. because it is pretty much devoid of meaning. I mean, you know, yes. you have everyone from you know Nancy Pelosi to AOC saying they're progressive. Right. So I think that to me, the term encompasses both people on the you know left of the Democrats, which can go well from uh, you know liberal liberals, so to speak. All the way to people who are socialists. I mean, when I back in the 90s, I think that people tended to use the term progressive, at least in academia, instead of socialist, because socialist was a bad word back then. Yeah, we're taking it back. Yes. And so then it was like, so when people when I came to Sussex and people started talking about being progressive, I thought, oh, I thought, oh, they're really socialists. Right, right, right. But in well, fact, that's now I go different. So you, you mentioned it before. A, a lot of the Gramsci translation is not only translation, but figuring out what he means by this because it's talking in code. Exactly. And that's sort of the same thing. Exactly. It's like, progr- you didn't want to, like, liberal was corporate Democrat. And even right. corporate Republican to some extent right. or liberal. And progressive was just used to say, yeah, I'm not that. But then, of course, it gets sort of co-opted out of academia to something else because, yeah, you step in it and, like, I guess, you know, you're meeting – I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't met that many progressives in in, in, uh, in democratic politics in Sussex County. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, I don't. I don't right. think there anybody, nobody, uh, other than you know, folks that you've worked with, uh, any any elected politician to any office in Sussex County that's a Democrat, none of them are as progressive, as far as I can. As well, that's far as a I small group. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, yeah, you're right. That is kind of a small group. Um, was that an N of one? Yeah, yeah, come to think of it. Um, but, but yeah, I, I I also am interested in sort of like what you what your impressions were because you described some in the book about um, some of the uh, traditions that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, some of like the men go here, the women go there. Um, you know, this is the way we've always done it sort of like fraternity sorority stuff, like secret society stuff. I mean, everybody kind of has that a little bit to an extent, but here it really serves a, a, a very powerful cultural purpose mm-hmm. that, that, that has, a direct, uh, has a direct impact on the way, on the politicians that come out of that area. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, I talk about it as good old boy culture yeah. in the book. And the funny thing is when I, when I first started running – for um, the state Senate back in 2014, I had an idea. I was party chair at the time and, you know, I have this academic background. I had an idea that, you know, I'm running as a Democrat. The Democrats are going to vote for me. And then I have to try to win over, you know, some independents and get enough people to win. But the first thing about Sussex that shocked me is that a lot of the Democrats aren't really what we would consider Democrats in today's 
terms. I always I always joke that, you know, they never got that 1965 memo about civil rights. So you have a, a lot of people who they see their party ID as like a identity category, like a family legacy. Yeah. So they're Democrats because they're always were Democrats. A Southern tradition. Even though their ideological position or their issues positions are more aligned with the Republicans. Yeah, it's so it was it was so funny to me to see the the sort of the last you know, vestiges is the wrong word because I guess it is the right word. The last vestiges of, of, of you know, of a of a Confederate Democrat. Yes. Um, that, that's there. They're neo-Confederate Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was so funny. We did a show on, on Bob Byrd's book. I'm sure you know Bob Byrd, the lobbyist. Yes. Uh, the, the, the round mound of rebound up in uh, North Wilmington. Um, yeah, his, his first story that's retold by What's-Her-Name is like coming from the South, having Confederate uh, soldiers in his family and being like, still being a proud Democrat. I'm like, bro, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, but yeah, I, I really, um, I, I'm surprised how many people still, um, still are holding on to that. Yeah, it's you know I was surprised by it, but then on the other hand, my dad was a Republican because his family was Republican. Even though I always say he was a Jesse Jackson Republican. Right, right, right. right? That was I mean, a, that was a nice like, term too because yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and he he loved clergy. He you know it's Jesse Jackson, Mike Huckabee, and the Ayatollah. And, <laughs> and not joking. So that's a, um, <laughs> the dream blunt rotation. Yeah, it's crazy, but but anyway, so a lot of people see it that way. So that was one thing, and then. I mean, I didn't realize this at the time. I didn't see a lot of this because it was only in writing the memoir, which was actually pretty difficult because it's it's hard to tease out the parts of your story that are interesting beyond just your friends and family, right, and to turn it into a book. So that was it took quite a while to do that. But the networks that you're talking about, I didn't even see, right? Like they have the um, the uh, Oyster Eat and Shrimp Fest. Yeah, this was the one that really – because I I had I had heard about it through some other means. I think it was in a, a long story about Delaware Democratic Party that was somewhere. Um, but yeah, you tell the story too. Do you, I mean, I'm sure people know it. Do you want to do you want to kind of yeah. give the background of what this is? Sure. So um, when I first started running, one of the uh, local um, journalists who had a column, he it was funny because he says, <clears throat> "Are you going to Shrimp Fest?" Which is the women's contingent right because the men are all over oyster fest yeah and, and just to be clear oyster eat or oyster I, fest the, the men must go to the oysters i would i would think that's like a i don't know i don't remember now but i think yes, that's right the, the men do the oyster eat at the um the fire hall right and so at some point the women got tired of sitting home so they started this shrimp fest so i so he's like are you going to go to shrimp fest and i was like well what is it and he told me and he was kind of chuckling when he said it and, um, yeah, and I'm like, okay. Uh, and this other guy's like, oh, I don't know, Claire. I don't know if you can, if you can hack it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to go. You know, and so I decided to ask a friend of mine who was a former firefighter if she would go with me. And she's like, uh, sure you want to go? And I'm like, what's going on? Like, why is everybody so reticent about me going to Shrimp Fest? And she's like, Claire, have you ever partied with redneck women before? And I said, uh, no. She said, well, it can get a little rough. And I'm like, whatever. So anyway, we showed up and it was, it was a, it was quite an experience. I was, my plan was to like work the room somehow, which didn't really work out. I mean, I got there and there was a, a little fire helmet on every play, every, uh, placemat 
and they were playing, you know, Bon Jovi and sort of having a girls' night out. Um, so it was it was really fun. We did some moonshine shots, but I didn't really feel like I could work the room because that's part of the whole network thing. I mean, I was a total outsider to this event, and it's really hard to hook in to networks that you're not a part of. Like, for example, my opponent always went to the high school football games, and people are like, well, if he's going there, then you should go there. Well, I can't just go there because I don't have any connection to the high school football games. I don't have children in the public schools. I don't know any of the parents. You know, I had my own networks, which I worked. But the, the networks that you don't see are very important um, for running, you know, for a campaign. And, and I didn't see a lot of this stuff until after the whole thing was over and I started analyzing what had happened. And also when I realized it was a pre-Trump year, that was very eye-opening. Right, that you see a yeah, lot in of retrospect, the forces you're like, oh, this is that coming. are coming together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like when um, a, a friendly old retired senator told me that in Sussex County there's Democrats, Republicans, and fire companies. I was yeah. like, what? What are you talking about? And I only came to understand that that was sort of like the good old boy bastion. Yeah, and just to be clear too, and, and you, you mentioned it in, in the, the, the women having their own event. The good old boy thing is accepted by it's, – it's, it's a – it's a gendered term, but everybody everybody's in it. Uh, if, you know, the women who go to the shrimp, uh, who are the wives of the men who go to the oyster thing, they're all in it. Um, they they're they're they seem to be fine with it as well, which is which. I and I'm not I'm not even saying that as a necessarily a, a, you know a accusation. It's just you know that's what the the imagine uh, that's that's what it is. You know they they have that's the culture. And so they're all sort of in that milieu. I looked at it as sort of the same thing because I, I, mm-hmm. was, I, I always looked at it and I knew exactly what you meant. But I, I wondered how people would read like the, 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 the good old boy versus women thing. Uh, and, and I thought to myself, well, actually, the women who go to that shrimp oil are actually in the good old boy network. Yes, exactly. Because the right, the Republican Party more aligned. I mean, the good old boy culture, it's a valorization of working class masculinity you know and because you always hear this like uh, i always have hearing praise for the firefighters and the police officers and veterans and correctional officers these are traditionally masculine jobs even if some women now do them but it's that valorization of masculinity i mean in the book i have quotes you know everyone from trump to you know whoever um even my opponent at the time it's always like oh we want to thank i mean even on the television it's this constant praising of these traditionally masculine occupations but it's the culture so it's hegemonic right and so the women there's many women that are involved with that culture too and when i talk about um the verse you know the good old boys versus nasty women and the you know the democratic party or people on the other side it's not really that they're valorizing women but they they want to bring men and women of all sorts together for their agenda but it's not like all the women are voting for the Democratic Party and the Republicans are also men because, in fact, a lot of women who are married or aligned with men in the good old boy culture, they have more in common with the men that they live with than they do some 1% woman who's running for office like a Hillary Clinton or a Michelle Obama. Oh, that's, there's no question about you know, that. It's, it's the same thing. It's like um, – and I also talk in the book when I try to – when I look at uh, gender, you know, it's not just – gender's not just – it's not just gen- simple gender like there's men and women or masculinity and femininity because of intersectionality, right? It's like I'm not just a woman, but I'm a particular type of woman, right? I'm professional class, white, 
lesbian woman, right? And that's all those identities are important, you know. And so when people in in the section where I talk about the Bernie Sanders campaign, when people say that women shouldn't vote for Bernie because it's against their interests, well, is it really against their interests? Because you know, what, who do they have more in common with? Working class people or you know, an elitist career woman, Madeleine Albright or right. Gloria Steinem or somebody. Exactly. So. Uh, I do want to mention, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it, because we were, I, we're, we're lucky enough to be able to excerpt this part for the Delaware call, because you do have a, an interlude there around the time um, the campaign is starting. Uh, when you run against uh, Ernie Lopez, I think we can say his name. Yeah, he, his name's in the book. Yeah, his name's in the book. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the names that aren't in the book. It's you really, <laughs> uh, you'd really have to struggle not to figure out who these people are. Um, so, well, also, if I can just say, it's not I use pseudonyms not so much because I want people to figure out not to know who they correct. are because you can. Right. But it's it. I felt like it made it less. Well, it was partly that I didn't want to call out you know people by name, but also it makes it sound like it's a personal problem. When the, what I'm what I'm claiming is that what I experienced could have been another set of actors. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I well, we kind of talked about that before we turned the mic on, and I want to talk about that again because I, I kept going back and forth about like the intent, um, because you know, per people there are people who are named and people who aren't, and I got had an idea that I want to ask you about. Okay. When, when we get to Pete, we'll talk about it because I'll because <laughs> I'll bring it up. I'll talk. You don't have to say it. I'll say. It. I'll well, say as the reader, yeah. I figured it out. Yes, so I just pretty, say, well, yes, as exactly. the reader, you you didn't. It could have been anybody, but um, right. So back to this this scene. So um, throughout the book, um, you you sort of deviate and go into sort of tell a story in a more creative sort of creative writing exercise, which I thought was pretty neat. Um, one of them is about a conversation you had um, as you're getting ready to run. You call it an ambush because you did not expect this person to challenge you in this way. Um, and without giving it all away, I just found it, it was just incredible that every, every, uh, institutional good old boy excuse that anybody has ever heard in Delaware about why you shouldn't run, why you shouldn't participate, why you shouldn't say bad things about shady people, uh, why you shouldn't challenge power, why you should be happy with what you got, all of that stuff. Every one of them was said to you in the space of about five minutes, and I could not believe it. I'll be very candid. I know a lot of these people who have been in similar situations running against establishment people, establishment money, um, against the cultural grain of the community, we'll say. Um, I know a lot of them, and they've all been, they've all gotten this, um, this talking to, whatever you want to call it. And I thought it was very important that you presented that to people so that everybody knows everybody's getting the same song and dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody's being told, oh, you know, you don't know the fire chief and you should run for school board and you don't, you didn't live here 75 years and you don't know this person's grandmother and everything everybody's yep. ever heard all in one, you got it all in one shot. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I mean about it's not just the, it's not just a personal problem of the woman who t who attacked. Correct. Him, yeah. Right? It's just this common thing. Right. So yeah, it's, it's very yeah. And I think that goes to what you were saying. This has nothing to do with the per that person who did it to you at that place in time. Mm -hmm. This is everybody who's uh, ch done anything political to challenge any of these institutions have has heard some variation of that. 
Right. And of course, it felt very personal at the time, right? right. Because it was two, three women actually who were very close to me. And they inexplicably, they were, well, one of them was supporting my campaign. Then they inexplicably just turned on me. And I didn't know why. And they summoned me. You know, for this, this I guess they might have thought it was an intervention or something, right? And just like you're saying, it's like I didn't, I wasn't waiting my turn apparently. And I don't think I put this anecdote in the book, but it was very striking to me. And I, I don't, didn't really hash this out, but there were a lot of older women who were very um, critical of me running. And one of them who I had gone and courted, I, you know, had the meeting, the ring kissing, all this stuff. And she said she'd support me, but then behind my back, she was, somebody told me, quote, like a rabid dog against me. And it was like she didn't get permission to run. Yeah, I was like, permission from whom? Right? She didn't wait her turn, my turn. You know, and, but I've always found in my life that if, I, you know, sitting there like the good girl keeping quiet and hoping somebody's going to call on me when it's my turn has not, is not a recipe for success. No, it's, a, it's completely undemocratic. Yeah. Um, it goes back to what you were saying. These these cultural institutions, and it's why we always read our Gramsci, uh, these cultural institutions are there just to maintain a power base and keep other people out. Mm-hmm. They're undemocratic. Um, there are other things I, I won't mention. I guess I don't want to go too far afield on it. But, yeah, I mean, right. the, the, the fact of the matter is when people are telling you that, it's, it's, a, it's a great indication that you're on the right track. And the section where I talk about what happened with, the, with my RD and – you know, the friends that I lost uh, during this conflict with uh, Prince Speaker. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's the next, the next yeah, the thing. Next so thing. The, the, campaign, the campaign comes to, comes to an end, and that, yeah. that part goes. But then your, your advocacy and activism continue. But the thing is that some of the people that were my friends, they were, and I knew what they thought, and we were aligned in our thinking. But then when they got on the party committee, it's like they thought, oh, now we're on the party committee, so we have to act differently. We have to protect the party. And they, some of them ended up quitting, because I, I think, because they felt troubled by what they had done. But it's part of what you're saying. It's like you, you feel like you just kind of get sucked into this culture, right? You have, you, you're a friend of somebody, but that's like, oh, but now I'm the, I'm the enforcer. I'm the gatekeeper. I have to make sure people are waiting their turn, that they're running for school board. And simultaneously telling people in public, oh, we need to recruit younger women. But then when a younger woman steps forward to run, it's all this other stuff about, you know, you're out of line, you didn't wait your turn, et cetera. I mean, we've seen this with elected officials as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're running, they run as you – know, they use that that cloudy term, right, progressive. And then, right. you know, they're they're basically just corporate Dems, just like, hey, you know, I've, I've said this before. I, I've talked to elected uh, representatives and senators in Dover who have great politics. If we talk like you and I are talking across the table, you know, in the studio, they'll tell you, I'm like, yeah, we agree on everything. And then they'll tell you, yeah, I can't do any of that, though. They won't run my bills. What bills? Yeah, I mean, you got a couple of amendments last last session. Like, is that, like, it, it's, it's not, you, you have to stand for something. And if you go into a position of organizing or advocacy or on the RD, and you decide that, well, why did you do it then? What was the what was the point of it if 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 it were not for some sort of of change, some sort of new idea? Right. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Right. Like nobody's nobody nobody's getting involved um, to make sure that you know companies still get their tax breaks. Like who's getting involved in politics for that? Some people are to get paid, but like regular people aren't. Mm-hmm. So it just seems so odd to me that somebody's like, "Well, I'm on the RD committee now, so I." Uh, 
Yeah, it's, it's like crazy because this. this is what was I was scratching my head about, and I do I try to unpack it in the book. I don't know, you know, the readers can judge whether I'm successful, but you can understand somebody who gets elected, they want to hold on to power, right? Or somebody who's on the coattails of somebody who has power or wants to get an economic benefit from somebody having a position. But then there's all these other people that don't have anything to gain, and they still sort of want to bask in the glow of power. Yes. And that's just, it's just really bizarre. I mean, somebody, I used to, I was telling, you know, for some people, I thought to myself, he's not your dad. He's not your husband. He's not your boss. Like, I don't understand why you're, you know, defending the indefensible, you know, in opposition to your own professed beliefs. You know, it's a very, the culture is a very strong pull. It's the, it's the, it's the, you know, Gramsci, back to the Gramsci thing, right? It's a hegemony, right? P- power structures maintain power because people consent to it now sure it's the it's like the iron fist inside the velvet glove but it's all the cultural uh, institutions and so forth that that prop up institutions it's not like just it, you know um like a strong man in 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 the office right it's That's that right. it's all the people that are going along with it the support you know, but it's apparatus. hard to not go along right that the, the idea yeah. that you can withdraw your consent and create something else is well. That's it's a it's a to, good strategy, but it takes a long time. Yeah, I mean that's like it's like we've talked in here before about capitalist realism. Everybody's sort of stuck in it, and your your mind. It's even hard to get your mind to imagine that you could. You don't have to consent, right? Like you don't have to. Nobody's saying you have to. Yeah, you like your, you like getting your picture taken with somebody at a barbecue, and to show your friends that you know you know the somebody that's on the Sussex County Council or something, um, or their dad did it and now they're doing it, uh, or whatever. Um, you don't have to you don't have to put up with that. Right. Of course there are co- there are coercive mechanisms, right? Where of course. jobs at stake or, you know Yeah, of course. I mean if you're these people do have in the within the or, community yeah. these insti- this is why it's reinforced by, oh, you know, honor the troops and honor the cops and honor the you know, it's re- it, that's how it gets reinforced. So, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to, um, you know, it's difficult to withdraw your consent when the people who are helping prop it up are the armed agents of the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You- well, to go back to a theoretical point, in one point in the book, I talk about the difference between Lenin and Gramsci, right? Because yes. Lenin wanted to see he's like seize political power and then work on maintaining it. But Gramsci's like that might work in a in Russia where the people don't consent to the you know authoritarian government, right? They don't buy into it. They don't want it. But in a country like the United States where people aren't that our our system's not well, maybe it is with the way that public trust is plummeting, but we're not to the point where we think our whole system is completely illegitimate. So you have to change the hearts and minds before you can really make political change. Yeah, it's a great. I, it was when I read that, you know, I, I I've talked to Harvey J.K. about this book because he was a Gramsci scholar. He's a Marxist historian, and his his view he takes a very dim view of Lenin. Now, I've always said Lenin had that view in that context. You know, it's a it's a massive country of peasants being mm-hmm. ruled by you know one family. You didn't really what you what you had to do was different than you know other types of revolutions exactly or other types of political. So it's it's contextual, but yeah, it's very very different. And I think, although I do have a pennant of Lenin here as a as a fun little thing, um, I I do agree with that. Like that, 
I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Lenin for that particular reason because that was a thing that was specific for that context. That context will never exist again. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like with the American and the French revolutions. I mean, they were the same ideals. But the context is different because in the United States, we had a fresh, well, you know, t- t- took over a country, took over land, and we're starting a new society. Whereas in Europe, they had an entrenched clergy and aristocracy and monarchy that had to be, you know, yeah. removed. Napoleon had to, in order the Grand to Armée had to deal with a it from, republic, yeah, right? from, from place to place. You know, it's... Yeah, and even so, both of them I think could be described as bourgeois revolutions because mm-hmm. there really yeah. wasn't there wasn't right. the ar- there wasn't the intellectual architecture to even think in those terms. It was you know it was it was people from maybe like Napoleon say came from sort of a hard scrabble background, but from a, a place where his family had you know some political power, um, but really that was for you know it was for the bourgeois to overthrow you know the monarchy. Not right. for the working class to overthrow the monarchy. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's a completely in, different uh, different set of circumstances. Right. And in Marxism, you're going to have the bourgeois revolution and then the socialist revolution. Correct. And then communism. That's the other thing and people in, don't – in Russia, they didn't have bourgeois revolution. They went tried to go straight to communism. Yeah. I, I, I always direct people to the work of uh, my friend Steve Paxton in the UK um, why you know communism – excuse me, capitalism was actually an important step, um, and it makes that very point. And I hope to be talking to him soon because he has another book coming out. Um, so let's get into the good stuff. Okay. Campaign ends, uh, but you're still doing advocacy activism. And you're working on the abolition of the death penalty. Right. Which was a great, great movement. And you write a op-ed for the newspaper about the situation, um, who's, you know, give some facts, uh, who's doing this and who's holding it up, what the political circumstances are, and they publish it in the paper. You're a political scientist and you got an op-ed published. Right, which I thought everybody does that, right? I, you, you would presume, yes. Um, do you want to take it from there? As you, <laughs> you, 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 so later on, we, you know, at some point yeah. in the future that you take a meeting um, at Leg Hall with a with a, uh, a state elected official to talk about this, and it goes in a very strange way. Yes. Okay. So I had just started my job. I won't. I won't. Everybody knows who I, where I work, but it, I'm speaking to the today is not associated with my organization. But I just started a job with an advocacy organization, and I went into. I had written this letter to the editor, calling for the um, Prince Speaker, as they call him in the book. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, um, to bring the death penalty, um, the, the repeal bill to the floor, and that he had the power to do it. I wanted him to do it. I didn't think anything of it. Our RD also put out a proclamation. And so I was just, you know, going into Leg Hall, my first day of work. Not my first day of work, but my first, like, first weeks of work. And I was meeting with legislators about our agenda. And I go in there, and I, I sit down with somebody, and we talk about our you know, the agenda I was there for. And at the end of the meeting, she says to me, Claire, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. Are you going to primary Prince Speaker? I was like, what? What are you talking about? I was shocked, right? And I was like, what do you, you know, just like scratching my head. And then I said, she's like, I hear things have gotten quite frosty. I was like, frosty? What are you talking about, right? And um, I was like, wait. 
I did just put. I just did just do that letter to the editor. Is he upset about that? She's like, "Oh uh, yeah." So I was like, "Oh no," you know. So I walk out. I walk out of the office, and I'm late for another meeting. So I'm rushing across to to meet with somebody on the house side, and I ran into an advocate, a head of another advocacy organization who I was friends with, at the time, and she was on my board, and she's like, "Claire, I can't believe you wrote that letter to the editor. I wish you would have consulted with me first. The prince is furious. Now he's even more opposed to the death penalty than he was before. I was like, what are you talking about? And I, I was starting to get a little, like, rattled, right? I'm like, what? So I had the other meeting, and then I went down to the basement, you know, where people hang out in the, in the cafe, and I ran into a, a, a volunteer head of another organization, and she's like, Claire, you crossed the line. You never should have said his name. <laughs> Was like, that was what got me at what? the end of the story when you were like, and then she was like, you should never should have said his name. And I was like, first of all, because it happens in that little cafeteria area and because of what was said, all I could think of was you could write that scene as like a middle school cafeteria and it plays exactly <laughs> the same way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the other thing it made me think was that was the point where I realized the, at least to me, the way I took it, the joke of, uh, of, Prince Speaker, when everybody knows who it is, is because the thing that made him the most mad about your advocacy, you, you said he was the one who had the power to bring the bill to the floor and that he should. Right. Now, it's funny because, um, I mean, and he's known as, let's be honest, a big fat baby. Maybe, maybe <laughs> We may or may not beep that out. You never said that. Actually, you're, you're telling Carl to beep it out. We might beep it out. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is, he ha- he he maintains his power. We don't know how much longer that's going to last. But he maintains his power by deciding what gets to the floor and what doesn't. And it's interesting that when you point that out, that's what makes him the most upset. Right. You know, and and so it was like a little bit and and, and it, again, it's not like a eureka moment. You understand that intuitively, but when you see it play out in such a childish uh way, you know, just talking behind your back, having having minions and people go out and make runs at you, um, right? Or like, or trying to get like, you know, he somebody told somebody to try to find out whether you were running, you know, or or somebody wanted to try to ambush you again to get to see what your reaction would be. Right now, I understand that in certain situations, but in this situation, you wrote a fucking letter to the editor to say put the bill on the floor. Right. And to and to and the reaction that you got and this and you know it goes further and further and we can talk about that. But I used to wear minion too. Would you mind taking a little aside and talking about it's a very interesting little section the difference between the prince and the courtier? Yes. And and the person in the court yes. and and the minion. So there, there's a there's a there's a uh, little digression which I enjoyed uh, that defines and contrasts the, the courtier and the minion. Right. Well, first before before I get to that, I just want to say one more thing about the. I was I originally I was calling this character the prince, but Mickey pointed out that I had the it, people wouldn't understand the power if I didn't say speaker also, right? Speak prince speaker, so people kind of get it. But the pseudonym here, right? Because it's not like this particular person has some sort of personality disorder that makes him a power monger or whatever. This is common in politics, right? It's and that's why it's not just about any particular person. The the prince you know, is a multifaceted metaphor. And one of the meanings of it is this, you know, sort of Trumpian type figure that tries to maintain power. And I mean, all over the country, you can see 
similar figures. So although we can delve down into the specifics because we know the context, somebody in another state might see somebody else as could might as well be somebody else doing that. The minion thing, you know, I use the terms in the book, um, Prince, uh, Prince Speaker, Lady Progressive, Lady Farmer, because one of the academic pieces is that there's a, a guy, a J.G.A. Pocock, who wrote a book called The Machiavellian Moment that talks about how the challenge of a republic is to maintain itself over time. And if you look at the cycle of regimes, you know, in political theory, over time, republics come forward and then they disintegrate and they, they die out. And so there's this idea that the royalist mindset, as I call it, is always there trying to, trying to overtake uh, republicanism, you know, small r republicanism. And because, because really we don't have to explain why we don't have republicanism or democracy. We have to explain when we do have it, right? Because the natural state is not to be democratic, I, I maybe you disagree on that, but um, no, I think you know, that's probably right. It's an achievement when you can have participatory democracy. Like the comp, the 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 default position is not that. Yeah, because right? the default position, if it takes if it takes collective full participation, I don't think that the that participation or action is the, the default position. I don't necessarily think it's passive. It's some some secret third thing. No, it's I think it's like. Just taking care of having uh, like blinders on and taking care of what's in front of you. And if you have to deal with an outside thing that comes in, you feel you're either prepared or not prepared. But you don't take that next step and start thinking about little bigger and bigger pictures, mm-hmm. more and more people. Yeah. You know, as many people, what does Gramsci say? As many people in the world who are trying to fight for a better life. Mm-hmm. History is about everybody. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to. I don't. I think the natural state like is 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 that is yeah. is the royalist mindset. I think yeah. that's right. So so when um so Verol, Mauricio Veroli, who's a, a political theorist, um you can tell I worked on republicanism as my one of my areas when I was in teaching. He he taught he has this book about um. It's Berta, who is the Italian? I'm blanking on his name. Berta. The, the Italian media mogul who was the prime minister. Oh, Silvio Berlusconi. Yeah, yeah, Berlusconi, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Silvio Berlusconi, and he, he was studying him because he's Italian and uh, the author. And he talks about the prince and courtiers. And because um, Machia, Machia, Republicanism and Machiavelli, you know, there's the, that's the book for us who are for that tradition. And so he talks about the prince and courtier. And the courtier is the one they're making, they're getting benefits from the power, right? It's like, for example, Trump comes to power, and think of all the people that are benefiting from that, right? You got, you know, everyone from Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's kids, the pillow guy, you know, all these people, they're, they're get, gaining a tangible benefit. But the thing that, that um, shocked me was all the people who weren't getting anything from the prince, and yet they still did his bidding. They still bowed down. And when he got angry, they started backpedaling. So people who had signed a proclamation calling for death penalty repeal were suddenly like, oh, oh, wait, I I didn't realize what I was signing. What? Of course you realized, right? But, you know, because, like, we don't want him to be angry, and he's the incumbent. We have to support the incumbent no matter what, right? That's the purpose of the party. That's the purpose of the RD. And so all these people that thought, you know, the Democratic Party was about more than that come into this RD, and they're told by certain people – that uh, Lord County Chair, for example, that their their job is just to shore up incumbents. And so 
you know, we were told we were not allowed to criticize right. anybody which, in office. Which is extremely interesting now, and, and I hope this is, a, this is more than just a, a, a cool thing that happened, and it is a cool thing that happened, but it's a lesson for people, too. Because that, what pe- when people say that, that's fake. Because when Prince Speaker's um, position is in jeopardy, as, as it is this term, and you see um, him handpicking uh, a, a, someone to run against an incumbent in Bear and showing up for that person, when you see him handpick uh, a cop to run against uh, Eric Morrison in Newark and showing up for that person, when you see him handpick a real estate agent to go against our comrade Kerry Harrison Dover and standing up for that person, they don't care about incumbents. Right. They care about their own. So I, I hope that that's a lesson for people because yeah. you you got that right before sort of this wave, and it was still like this is what we do. We don't you know we don't do that, and 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 now it's being proven. Uh, well, it's 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 being exposed. Yeah, I mean, and that's very common, right? It's like whatever's convenient. Oh, we're it's, we're gonna we're gonna support incumbents, but only as long as the incumbents support us, right? Then we'll actively go against incumbents if it serves us. This is a little bit of a tangential example, but I keep thinking about it with the, the governor of Virginia and his attack on trans children, right? He's all about they're all about parental rights, parental rights. You know, the school can't you know, not tell you your child is using different pronouns and all this. But it's only parental rights when you're attacking trans children. It's not parental rights when the parents want the school to support their child's transition, right? Then it's like, oh, you better get docu- legal documentation, right? So it's the same kind of thing. It's like the, the, it's a principle when it serves us, and then all of a sudden we're using something else. I and mean, this is so common in politics. Yeah, and I don't – and I'm, I'm on one hand, I will say, I, I don't I, – I think it's a huge waste of time to point out every hypocrisy. Yes, huge, I agree. Huge waste of time. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think um, it's instructive in the sense that we were talking about before, in the sense of, of sort of freeing your mind to think about alternatives and not maybe not consenting to what doesn't seem right to you. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, there's no the, – the, all of those mechanisms that want to keep you in the royalist mindset – Sometimes, if if you think about them a different way, you you might break that spell. Mm-hmm. But yeah, calling out hypocrisy all the time is a, yeah, I know because it's like a right. Of course, I mean, Mitch McConnell's a hypocrite. We yeah, all know that okay. he's not going to change his view when you Nobody say he's a cared. hypocrite. Yeah, he did this you know? one time with the Supreme Court, but they never did it before, and they'll never do it again. But, yeah, we know it doesn't. That's just what they yeah. do. But the thing about the thing about the RD and and the Prince, who who was our representative. One of the things that it's the it's the it's the understanding of democracy that was so lacking in people. That was one of the other things that was shocking to me. I I mean, people like, why were you shocked? I don't know. (laughs) Just because I thought better. But but when I and I made this argument very vigorously at one of our meetings, I'm like, we don't we don't we're not in existence to support our representative. They serve us. And elections are the time when we judge their job performance and we decide whether or not we're going to reelect them. It's not our time to just rally around. Right. The, our, the representatives need to be representing and, re- and accountable to the people. Right. That's the fundamental principle of democracy. Yeah. I need to, I'm going to ask you a question about yeah. this. I'm so glad you yeah. brought this up because I, 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 I'm getting pulled into sort of these election. Elections are more meaningful now, especially with Carl here, you know, driving, yes. driving part of the ship. Yes. Um, but I, I'm, and I'm going to use a specific example. But again, to your point, I think this is not. It's, I'm using it as an example. I don't think it has anything to do with these two people. Right. 
Namdi Chikwocha, just by the skin of his teeth, uh, in a new in a newly drawn district here in Wilmington, uh, beat Councilperson and Comrade Sinead Darby by less than 100 votes, 80 votes, I think. <laughs> Sinead, I think, announced the 4th of July, still only lost by 80 votes. Now, the reason that happened was because it became abundantly clear that Namdi was at the service of different stakeholder interests, those interests being landlords, mm-hmm. property developers, and cops, which are three of the big, you know, that's the big, part of the big stakeholder group right. in the Delaware Way, right? And so the movement decided that our stakeholder uh, is broader because it includes everybody, that it would be a good idea to challenge him. <clears throat> and he took, and, and just by, by razors, razor edge margins, For the next two years, I think advocates are going to have this idea that because he was challenged and came so close to losing, that it will be clear that he's going to have to make at least some concessions to some advocacy in Dover. So you're going to be able to go in and say, look, you're going to have to soften your stance on X, Y, or Z. And I don't believe he's going to do it. I'm almost positive he's not. Because he still serves the same interest. It's, it's a yes-no at that point. It doesn't matter how close it is. You're going to continue to do the exact same thing. And so I'm actually thinking about starting a campaign of everybody who would go, like, try to advocate to get, um, you know, some amendment from Namdi or whatever. Forget it. Train. Uh, Shanae should start running uh, in January uh-huh. of this year, of next year. And and just and just put him and just just retire him in two years, because the fact of the matter is that those type of they're they're serving a particular group, and so I don't really think that's going. I don't, as you said, I think once that system gets set up, that particular politician is serving those interests until they're gone. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what you thought about that because I know we all go in and try to like lobby, you know, call your rep, call Namdi, call. You know, Stephanie T. Bolden and tell them you want rent control or something. They're just going to be like, okay. You know, they don't serve that interest. And so, you know, I, I think I'm going to be very unpopular with this opinion. Um, but I do think issue campaigns are good. Like when he does something, again, which he will do, or any anybody in this situation. Deb Heffernan. Any, any, any incumbent who just barely squeaked one out. Um, yeah, I think we should have go knock on doors in their districts and be like, yeah, and just sort of lay the groundwork for when you're going to knock doors with some campaign lit. But I don't think there's any point in having a conversation or dealing with that person at all. That that person, again, dealing with the community around those issues to sort of lay the groundwork for retiring that person the next cycle. That's a different story. But yeah, I don't. I think nobody should go to Dover. Fuck that place. Don't go. It's horrible. I mean that that Lake Hall. I didn't actually didn't spend a lot of time in Dover before. I had been Lake Hall maybe two times, and I've been there probably ten times in the last six months. It's horrible. It's the worst place in the world. Well, <laughs> I think that I mean I think that you're right that the a, a lot of people double down when you think they're going to make be, make concessions. Yeah, I mean you and said it yourself. You s- I mean Pete's first reaction to your 
op-ed basically just stating that he had the power to bring this to the House floor for a vote was that, well, now he's just going to be, he's going to be even more mad. Like, this despiteful, vindictive oh, nature right. of stuff. Like, and then, yeah, I mean. And people said because I was in his RD and I had been the chair for four years that it was embarrassing for him. and all. But it's like, it's, don't take that position. Your position ought to be, yes, my RD chair did this and we have a robust democratic co- deliberation in our district. She's entitled to her view. I'm taking under consideration. I'm also, you know, you know, I have X, Y, and Z things that I'm also considering. That's the approach to take. Not like, how dare you, you know, ask me to do something in public. You yeah, know, I mean. You know, who are you? Some girl, as he right, frequently calls me. Right? I'll tell you what would be embarrassing to me is those tight Under Armour golf shirts. <laughs> That's fucking <laughs> embarrassing, dude. But as far as the leg hall thing, I mean, personally, I think that, I guess I think that there's lots of different areas that, that people should work in the ways that make sense to them. I mean, it would be nice if we could have a tightly run everybody on the same rocking and lockstep. But Carl, I mean, you have to keep people... everybody in lockstep. So you have to run a tight <laughs> ship, my friend. Some people feel that they want to do, you know, like I'll be in like, hall. Oh, it's part of my, my job. And, yeah. and you can make some changes yeah. legally. I mean, you can you can sure. make some Yeah, progress. I mean, I, I'm and making more of a general, might... I'm making a sort of a sweeping. Yeah. At some point, you know, maybe somebody would, but I, I, and, and maybe I'm sort of also basing it on this idea that you know, that a electoral challenge or an electoral challenge that was significant, wasn't just like a throwaway one, would, would actually be leverage in that. And I don't think it is. I think you, you got to beat them. That's it. I don't think, I don't think you're going to be able to go into, uh, you know, to, I'd use Namdi just because he was the one who won by the slimmest of margins and say, hey, maybe you're going to get on board with this now, you know, since you almost lost. I mean, he could prove me wrong. I doubt it. Well, yeah, I don't know. It probably depends on the person, too, because I'm thinking about um, Joe Biden, right? I mean, he did make make concessions to... Who, to whom? Some, and well, when? he finally did the... Maybe we're getting off on a tangent. Yeah, I but think I don't it think... depends on the person whether they're just going to double yeah. down and say, I'm going to scorn. Now it's going to be scorched earth against you. Or they're going to be like, hey, maybe I can peel off some of your people, throw you a bone. Yeah, I suppose. You know, I think it might depend on the person. And I, I suppose. I don't know the person in question personally. So. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't just totally disagree with you at all. Well, I have one more topic I want to talk about. Okay. It's not related to the book necessarily, so I'm going to plug the book one more time. Battling the Prince, A Woman Fights for Democracy, Claire Snyder Hall. We're going to have links to it um, in the show notes, and um, we have some other stuff planned to kind of pump it because I really do think, again, it's sort of like I was texting you when I was reading it because it's like I feel like it was written for me. Uh, <laughs> well, it's so funny because I wrote as, – as I, we ended up moving to Florida for four years, and I was, I was right, finishing trying to finish the book and everything, and then – it's like then it comes out, came out in 2021 and came out in paper in 2022. And then we had moved back to, it's like, oh, we're moving back to Delaware. And this book is about stuff that happened in Rehoboth where we're going to be living. Oh, no. Well, but, you know, luckily it's we've, shocking how many people haven't read it. We have reinforcements now. <laughs> well, more people are going to read it now for sure. Yeah, because it's people, you think, I'm like, oh, that person probably read my book. And Mickey's like, no, they didn't. They didn't read it. Come on, Mickey. Come on. <laughs> kind of, that's not what you're supposed to say. Um, so here, here's here's the the question I want to end with because it's you're you're an you're an excellent person to ask this question to. I'm part of a new Delaware journalism collaborative. You might have seen it online. 
it's basically representatives from almost every media outfit in Delaware, um, WHYY in Philadelphia, the Delaware libraries. It was put together by Allison Levine uh, as part of a journalist non journalism nonprofit grant that we're all going to work together in a collaborative and try to write what they call solutions journalism, do solution journalism stories where they're written the way I do them, however, um, on a particular topic for two years. We just started having editorial meetings. And, you know, Mike Feely from the News Journal's on there, the guide, um, Daryl from the Bay to Bay, Cape Gazette, WDEL, WHYY, the whole gamut. The topic they picked was growing political polarization and what, how, the, the, as the gap widens, politics get more crude, solutions are harder to sort of suss out in the political realm, and this is sort of the general topic. Now, again, we haven't gotten very far in editorial, but... My position is going to be that the idea that we're more polarized today than ever before is a myth. That the idea that this kind of polarization is necessarily a problem is a myth. And the reason I think that is, I don't, nobody's ever defined what the two poles are. And then once you define the poles, whatever they are. Which one has political power, and how do they exercise it? Which one is a threat to democracy and small-r republicanism? Who are these people, as you would say? Like, I, so I'm, I'm actually trying to get my thoughts together to be able to, to say that people have particular feelings, and they, for ideological reasons, pick a team. But I don't necessarily think that that means because of the internet and people see like MAGA this and MAGA that and they have to entrench and then people say they're stupid and they're, there's – I'm not saying that the discourse is good. The discourse is poison. But I'm – but this idea that there's two poles and we should meet somewhere in the middle I think is not correct. Um, and so I'm interested in like what your thoughts are about it because I think you're – you know, I, you're a great person to ask to help me sort of flesh this out in my mind. Well, I mean, I think you're right that if you look at public opinion, we're not polarized, right? And and, and a huge percentage of the population doesn't even vote, right? But you have a two-party system where you have to choose. If you're going to engage, there's these two sides. And, I mean, I, th I, I still hold on to this idea that we can come together if we have an agenda for working people. Right, because a lot of this polarization is stoked by by capital, basically, right? The one one percent or capital, whatever you want to call it, right? That they're they've been, you know, it, it back in, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, actually. Back in the, you know, in the thirties, forties, fifties, the right was afraid of socialism; they saw it as a real threat, and so they had to make concessions to workers, you know, have public institutions for people so that we wouldn't go commie. Um, but that's been that threat is no longer seen. Well, it might be coming back, but for a while it hasn't been seen. And so they've been systematically coming for unions, coming for public institutions, trying to destroy the public schools, you know, trying to and now trying to destroy democracy, I would argue. Right. So it's and and there's special interests that are deliberately stoking division. They're stoking 
um, issues that divide us. They're stoking racism. And not that racism isn't this other entity that's been living there in our culture and doesn't seem to ever go away, right? But the, the polarization is largely the two political parties becoming more polarized. And we should never meet in the middle. I just want to say that. We don't meet in the middle when one party is fascist and the other one is, you know, well. Corporate. <laughs> the, the corporate, corporate, right? You know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the nice wing of the corporate. Yeah. My, my fear or my prediction has been that what would happen is that, well, what hopefully will happen is that the, the Republican Party has gone fascist on the way to fascism and they're going to be replaced by a new party on the right. And then we'll have the two parties because we have a system that supports two parties. But what's probably what may, might happen is there'll be a neoliberal party that'll bring in the former Republicans and the corporate Democrats. And then there'll be nothing for the left. That's the worst case well, scenario. Well, you know, I'll, but I'm, I th- I'm ready to have that. I'll have that fight. Like I'll have that fight with neoliberals. I mean, if 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 if, if somehow the the specter of of authoritarianism and fascism get defeated, and we got to fight the Chris Coons of the world, I mean, I'm fine with that. I'll do that. You know, <laughs> right? But my but the worst case scenario is that it doesn't get defeated. So that's one of right, the parties, right, and right. then the 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 AOC wing gets cut off. And well, I feel like that's where like we are that. now, actually. Yeah, I you know, mean, I feel like we have, uh, you know, a, 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 we have reactionaries and you know neo Confederates. That's what states' rights are, everybody. If you, you know, if you want to hear, listen to states' rights about abortion or states' rights about this or what Texas right. can do, how great Texas is or Florida. That's neo Confederate. Just be very clear about that. Number right. one. So there's 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 them, and then there's people who are trying to make every concession so they don't get too mad. That's the Chris Coonses of the world. And those are the two parties. You know, there there is a, I think there's a social, I'm going to use socialist, I'm not going to use the word progressive, there's a socialist wing of the Democratic Party now. It's doing okay. I, I understand why people are using the Democratic Party in this manner. Um, but ultimately, the idea would be that as, as the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party might peel off the liberals of the Republican Party, because they're not authoritarian, that we do an even better job peeling off people who want to do mass movement workers politics. So there'll yes. be so there'll be a That's party who doesn't want to give you Medicare for all. That's the party Chris Coons is in. And there's a party that does want to give you Medicare for all. That's the party the AOC is in. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Yeah. But I think that that's possible if people look at it that way rather than because, you know, I, I just don't like I don't like the way that. The, the the polarization framing, I'm still I I don't I'm not down with it. Yeah, you know I saw something interesting. You probably know about this. I saw it for the first time yesterday. Have you ever heard of MAGA communism? <laughs> oh my! Is that God. like a joke? Or yeah, is it's a, a joke. So it's a joke thing because because of the point being that there should be people who would be amenable to a working class agenda. Correct. But they're voting. Some people say false consciousness and so forth, but I mean, that's a complicated debate that they should be, that there's a way to make, I don't know that there is, but I I saw um, that on Twitter and I was like, what the hell is that? I'll tell you. Okay. Thank you. There's a contingent online. It's mostly like fringe YouTubers. Okay. And, and like streamers and stuff. But, if they they've built up uh, an audience so that they can make weird claims and get on like so the guy who came up with this Jackson Hinkle he's like a streamer 
he was able because he came up with this and got it to trend on Twitter to be on. He was on. <laughs> he was on Onan of the, the the OANN thing. I think he's been on Tucker Carlson. So oh, it's just a way uh-huh. to like say weird stuff and okay. like it's it's like to get clicks. Yeah, it's yeah. it's completely incoherent. Yeah, I didn't investigate because I was just kind of. You still please through. don't waste your time. No, no, I won't. But but the point being that there's. A, a agenda for working people that that speaks directly to their material interests should be a winner, you know. And and the idea that we have to organize—I mean, it's, you know—you have to organize in places, you know, the Walmart workers and the, you know, Amazon workers, and and people are organizing in those places. But that there's a there is a common ground that can be found on the basis of class interests. But that's why the one percent's working so hard to polarize us and keep us fighting over, you know, um, whatever. Sometimes I wonder what the hell we're fighting over. But yeah, well, you know, I think the, I know. I mean, you you said it yourself. Issues, I think you, you I, I think you were on to it, and you actually. Um, I'll I'll read the introduction to the book because this this covers okay. it, uh, and then I'll, we'll we'll close with this. Okay, a specter is haunting the United States. The specter is authoritarianism. While, uh, while that force has long in, uh, inhabited the realms of household and workplace, government-sponsored authoritarianism has grown over the course of my lifetime, a period when the country was supposedly becoming more democratic. Indeed, over the past 50 years, a punitive, militarized, authoritarian mentality has increasingly animated federal policy, as evidenced by the war on crime, the war on drugs, the war on terror, now the war on immigrants, all which have bolstered prison police, military, and surveillance apparatus, and aggrandized the executive branch over the legislature. Yep. Uh, I have a, f- a friend, uh, a political commentator, who calls it the 50-year counter-revolution. Um, I think you just described it perfectly. Uh, after World War II, we, we, we continued, as we did before World War II, when FDR saved capitalism, continued to make concessions to labor, mm-hmm. continued to make se- concessions to working people, starting with about Jimmy Carter that stopped. And so and this is what yep. Harvey J.K. preaches. And so since then, there's been a 50-year counter-revolution by reactionary capital to get us to this point. Yep. And that's where we sit. I mean, that's how we started right. the book. And I think that that's exactly right. And it's produced, uh, what is that, equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, hopefully. No, not hopefully. quite equal. But not uh, not uh, equal uh, yet, but getting there. I mean, there. it's amazing how the left has risen. I mean... It's it's amazing what's going on now, and people are organizing, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Your book is sort of like time. it's right at the time of like right at the time where this is happening, because uh, the last part of it, when people read it, um, you know, there are sort of like rules to follow, steps to do, things to think about to get you into uh, the the New Prince Collective, and yeah, people are starting to do them. I think when you wrote that. Maybe I don't know. I don't know if you're prescient or just optimistic, but it feels like people are starting to do one. I'm glad you think it's optimistic. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I I'm not saying I think it's optimistic. <laughs> uh, once again, it's battling the prince. A woman fights for democracy. Uh, Claire Snyder Hall. Claire, I'm glad you made the trip. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. And you know what we had to say at the end? Left is best. <laughs> <laughs>